to the Peds Ortho podcast. Uh, we are thrilled to welcome you back for this episode. We've got a special guest with us today, Dr. Matt Ellington from Central Texas Pediatric Orthopedics in Austin, Texas. So we're thrilled to have you on the show with us, Matt. My name is Julia Sanders. I'm at Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm joined by my three co-hosts. Hey, everyone. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital, New Orleans. And this is Josh Holt from University of Iowa. This is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt Children's. Awesome. Well, welcome, Matt. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you all very much for having me. I've been listening to you all a lot lately and really enjoy this. So thank you all. Awesome. I'll try to live up to the hype. So let's start with some get to know you questions, Matt. Um, so outside of the OR, what's your favorite thing to be doing? So in the fall, definitely tailgating. Uh, so we go to every UT game, you know, live right, right down the street. I've had a couple former staff come up with me for a couple games and, you know, just tailgate, do a lot of it, smoking some good meats, some pork butts, some brisket, you know, whatever's good and just getting out, getting outside. And uh, if you got to pick kind of one case that you're still so excited about that's on your OR schedule for tomorrow, uh, what would that case be? So I'd say a loose osteochondral fracture. Sweet. Any particular joint or just any, any loose... Okay. The knee. All right. Yes. Cool. Cool. Wait, more and more. So what do you do for that? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been starting to do a lot more of the suture augmentation. So using kind of bioabsorbable, the bioabsorbable anchor to put some Vicryl through. I um, mean, I've been holding those and I've, I've really been liking that. I've gotten quite a few uh, MRIs back on some of these kids because there's really no other way to check it right to see if it healed or not other than the MRI and really been liking it. Um, so, and especially even for my Patella dislocations with those acute osteochondral fractures, it's nice to be able to fix that, you know, lateral femoral condyle piece and not have to worry about it ever again. Cool. Yeah. All right. That was hey. on my list for the, uh, the stir in the pot round. So we knew, we knew hey. he'd get sportsy. Stirring it early. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, can I just ask for those yeah. of us who are less informed? Cause that wasn't a technique uh, that I was aware of when we were training. We use those little nails that kind of grab the cartilage and then it seemed like they would somewhat resorb, but the heads would fall off and be stuck in the joint. Or have those been largely replaced by this new technique or what's the current, what's the state of the union on that? For me, I'd say yes. I mean, I've never been, like you said, very happy with those. I mean, they're so small and flimsy and they always break off. And if they don't break off when you're putting them in and they break off later into the joint. So that's not a whole lot of fun. So I think this technique is really nice. You can, you know, really lay that cartilage piece down and use as many of the, uh, I guess I could say push lock anchors as you need with the vicral suture. And it's just, it's just a nice fixation knowing that it's going to go away. And, you know, you leave there at kind of time zero and seeing this kind of really nice osteochondral fragment that's really just pushed down very nice. Um, and then you kind of mentioned UT already, but uh, sports team of choice, let's, let's say NFL team of choice. Uh, NFL, I'd have to go Cowboys, but All definitely right. a bigger college football fan. So. You know, cool, it's cool. UT and then Cowboys way down there. But way, way down there. Yeah, okay. I did grow up in the '90s when the Cowboys were really good, so that definitely helped. That's fair. We'll forgive you for that then. All right. Um, thanks again to today's sponsor. Uh, we are sponsored today by Nuvasive. Big thanks to them. Really big help to the Posna mission, and always a big supporter of pediatric orthopedics. And you'll hear a little bit more about Nuvasive and uh, their sponsorship later. 
Well, we'll go ahead and get started on our on our ACL papers. And I must admit that I do not do ACL reconstructions. So everybody's going to have to pitch in on this one a little bit. But um, let's start off with, uh, with your paper, uh, Matt. So variability in pain management um, after ACL reconstruction in adolescent patients. So tell me a little bit about, you know, how this paper came about, your findings, uh, anything that was kind of surprising to you, and where you think we might go next with this line of questioning. So this came out of the Hosta Sports QSVI I've been a part of for about six years, I guess now. You know, I can definitely thank all my, the former chairs, uh, Henry Ellis and um, Zach Stinson, and then the one for Jen Beck. So basically, we just kind of, you know, sit around on Zoom meetings every every couple months and try to think of ideas. And with this, we were just talking about what everybody does for pain management perioperatively around ACLs. And there were probably 10 of us in the group and all 10 basically did something different. So it was kind of a, hmm, that's interesting, like do completely different things. And so really just kind of want to see what everybody else was doing. And then so that we can know, you know, what is similar, what is different, you know, because the similar stuff, obviously, no reason to talk much about that. But then the stuff that does have a lot of variability, maybe we can try to standardize that a little bit. Awesome. And um, so just for the listeners out there, so um, this was a survey and it looked at kind of what are your preoperative pain management techniques, if any, um, and then postoperative pain techniques and then kind of what what does that look like across the spectrum of people uh, interviewed you know most people were fellowship trained in pediatrics or there was a, a subset that were double fellowship trained in pediatrics and sports medicine um, the majority of people practice at an academic pediatric hospital and quite a few that had been in practice a while so more than 20 years and then kind of a smattering of the 11 to 15 and 5 to 10 year and most people are doing like at least 15 ACLs a year, a few people over 50. So this is really kind of the subset of people that we want to know, you know, what are these people doing? Because this is probably the gold standard, or at least we would like to think of potentially developing a gold standard, I think. So one of the things that I found really interesting was that not a lot of people are using pre-op pain meds. And those that are, aren't using any kind of evidence-based guidance for that. And even when you look at the post-op pain medications that people are prescribing. Um, it's really only like a fifth of people that are following evidence-based recommendations. So that was pretty surprising to me. I expected it to be more for this subset of surgeons who are obviously very involved in academics, do a lot of these. So what do you think that tells us about where we should go with this? And, and should there be guidance on this a little bit more? <laughs> Your last point is very, very valid. I mean, about 20% of people said they actually use evidence to guide their perioperative pain control, which is, you know, insane. Is there anything else that we do in pediatric orthopedics or orthopedics in general? We go, yeah, you know, maybe 20% of this we're going to use evidence for. The rest of it, we're just going to kind of, I will do, you know, just do what you're trained at, right? And that's what most of these people just said, that whatever you train doing, that's what you did. Or you just lean to the anesthesiologist and say, hey, what do you what do you think we should do too? And right. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I like to, you know, we take care of these kids. Right. And I like to kind of control what, what happens to them. And I don't really just want to say, Oh yeah, do whatever you think is best, you know, without me being kind of the one that, that helps guide that and helps pick that. So I think the biggest thing is we need more evidence. We need more studies. Um, and we're, I'm actually a part of a, a prospective study uh, it's called Spain. It's actually out of the anesthesia cohort. 
And we're prospectively looking at this perioperative pain for ACLs. So, you know, we just finished gathering the data. So our six-month outcome should be out this summer. So hopefully we'll have some good, some actual evidence to guide some of this. That's awesome. That's really good to hear. Cause I think this is this, this survey like begs for that, right? It's like, what should we be doing? And, and can we get some level of consistency? Cause it's pretty crazy that even I think, you know, probably within the same town, somebody can have an ACL or their kid can have an ACL reconstruction and get a wildly different opportunity for pre or post-op or any, any kind of pain medication. Yeah. I mean, even in my own practice, there's two sports and we do things completely different. Right. So I think not only in just the same town, but even the same practices. um, Absolutely. The only other thing I kind of wanted to mention on this was one of the things that the survey, I think kind of didn't get to, which is what one of the other papers talks about is quantity because um, it's very different to say like, yes, I prescribe narcotics or I don't prescribe narcotics postoperatively, but then what is the, the volume and the quantity of what you're prescribing postoperatively? And I think you would, I mean, I'm assuming that the responses would be just as variable as everything else. Yeah. So we did look kind of a subset of that about 11 to 20 was kind of the halfway. To the next study you're going to talk about is super surprising. Um, yeah. and a little alarming, but, but yeah, I think, you know, I, I think the, my, my kind of philosophy is I give three days. So I give kind of 12 pills and and that's it. And if they have, if they need more, they have to call in, but it's very rare that that ever happens. So yeah. I think, yeah. And what's your stance on blocks? Cause that was a little all over the place too, you know, femoral adductor, no block, yes block. And yeah. How about what's your stance? Anesthesia? <laughs> Can I just ask, what's your stance on everything? What's the, the Matt yeah. Ellings? Yeah. I'll, run, uh, I'll run through everything. So, so I'm big on multimodal pain medicine. I think that's, that's what we have to do, right? You try to hit it, hit the pain every way you can, right? So I think for preoperative, I do gabapentin and Tylenol on every patient pre-op. I am actually a no blocker. So I am definitely in discipleship of Dr. Andrew Pinnock. And I took that here when I came from Rady. Um, and I just do intraarticular ropivacaine at the end. You know, looking at all the adding morphine and all that kind of stuff, that never made a whole lot of sense to me you know, intraarticularly, you know, it's fine giving morphine and things like that, but I just don't see how giving it localized can really help. So I basically, I'd usually do, you know, half of their, you know, dose per weight or whatever. And I do about 15 cc's or so in the joint and the rest around the incisions. Um, and then I give Toradol kind of immediately post-op. Um, and then I've got a big handout that I give patients. I think, you know, going through everything with them really helps. So I talked to them, the pre-op visit about kind of how we're going to manage the pain and then post-operatively as well. So I do ibuprofen, Tylenol every six hours. So, you know, I'm a big fan of something every three, right? So ibuprofen, three hours later, Tylenol kind of back and forth. In the packet I give them, I have, you know, their dose for their weight because obviously that's, as y'all know, always a huge problem. You know, they're giving this 200-pound kid 200 milligrams of ibuprofen. Obviously, that's not going to do anything. Um, I'm also a huge fan of cryocuffs. um, So everybody gets a cryocuff, in my opinion. And I have them first 72 hours. They keep that thing on nonstop. And then I really tell them, you know, up front, the first three days are not going to be a whole lot of fun. Um, And so it's really important to stay up on your pain. I have them do quad sets as soon as they wake up. I think getting their quad firing is also a big part of this. Um, But, you know, I think it's it's hitting it every different way we can. The multimodal pain is huge. Um, And then just and counseling is also big, right? You got to kind of tell them what to expect. Like, it's going to hurt. You know, I'm about to cut into your knee and expand your joint. Like it's not, it's not going to feel good. So, 
you know, you have to have somewhat of that understanding and, and try to give them a goal. That's why I make them do 500 quads a today. Maybe I mean, but I think it's having, having something for them to do to take their mind off of it also helps. Yeah. And quick follow up question on the block thing. So are you a no blocker because of added OR time or hassle, or are you a no blocker because of motor block? Yeah. So I would actually say both. I'm not a very patient person. I'll have to, I will fully admit that. Um, and so I don't like to be slowed down, but honestly too, you know, I think that the, that blocks are not as benign as anesthesiologists act like they are. And we're actually looking at that through some other, uh, prospective studies and, you know, a lot of NFL athletes, you know, they're stopping blocking those because there have been some ill effects from that. And, and, you know, I really think the most important thing for these kids is getting that quad firing and quad going. And I know adductor is a sensory block, but it's not always, it's just a sensory block. You definitely get that motor blockade some and Cyclops lesions stiffness sucks. And so I'd rather them not get that. And so, you know, I, I don't, I just don't want any issues or problems with the quads. And so, so kind of both. So yes, I'm impatient, but also I don't want them to, to knock out their quad. And also, so I do mostly quads or, or BTB, and an adductor doesn't make a whole lot of sense either as far as controlling that pain, right? Because a lot of that's medial. So anyway. Perfect. Yeah, I yeah. know. And that, that hit on one of our other, where other question is graft, graft of choice. Because I know that's this essentially a religion in sports. It is. So, well, first of all, I, I was surprised that only 89% were prescribing narcotics. That sort of jumped out at me. Uh, but the other question that I wanted to throw at you before we move on from this paper so you told us what you like. Was there anything you don't like? Is there anything you saw in the survey responses? And you're like, Ooh, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I mean, the, there were, you know, some people that were giving more than 40 opioid pills, which obviously don't really like that, you know, and, and, and kind of like you touched on it, the amount, the few percentages are actually giving preoperative anything. And again, it's just the whole fact that everybody's just doing what they were taught to do without looking at any of it. That's that to me, that was kind of the most surprise, not necessarily. I mean, yeah, evidence-based being 20%, but just, yeah, the rather 70% or whatever it is, just look at, oh, this is how I was trained. So this is how I'm going to keep doing it. And that's just, that's not what we need to do just as, as orthopedic surgeons. All right, perfect. Well, let's move on because I, I think that's a nice dovetail to the next paper. So at the second paper, we're going to talk about opioid represcriptions after ACL reconstruction in adolescence are associated with subsequent opioid use disorder. And so this is senior author, Dr. John Voorhees out of Stanford. And um, they had a pretty big population to look at because they they basically used ICD-9, ICD-10, and CPT codes um, over a four-year period. And they looked at a nationally representative administrative claims database. And so they were able to look at morphine milligram equivalents after these procedures for a very big population. And while the rate of patients diagnosed with an opioid use disorder was super low, it's 0.7%, so less than 1% within a year of surgery. But if you looked at some of their kind of logistic regressions, it gets pretty scary pretty fast. So um, the total number of morphine milligram equivalents, so MMEs initially prescribed, um, so every additional 100 MMEs prescribed, the odds of an opioid use disorder increased by 13%. And then for patients that got a re-prescription within six weeks of surgery, their odds of developing a disorder uh, went up by 161%. And so I, I think those are pretty scary numbers because I mean, it's, it's a low percentage that's going to happen to, but obviously this is a devastating like lifelong 
issue if this happens. And so it's something that I think to, to the point of the variability, we really need to talk about standardizing because we, we really should know how many to prescribe and, and where things get scary rather than just signing off like, yeah, let's read, you know, your nurse gets a message, oh, so-and-so wants more pain meds and you kind of forget who it is and you're like, oh yeah, I'll send those in, right? Like, let's be thoughtful about who we're re-prescribing for. And uh, 20% of the patients that they looked at too, which I thought was surprising, received more than one type of opioid post, which is crazy to me. So, you know, is this a chicken and egg situation where these kids are higher risk for developing an opioid disorder and then they get prescribed or do they get exposed and then they become dependent? You know, that's, I think, a little bit TBD. But Matt, tell us your thoughts on on this and anything else that stood out to you on the study. Yeah, I think the the two narcotics of some people really stood out as being kind of scary, right? So I think, you know, you know, you need to be really cognizant about how many you're giving, I think. You know, that's why I like to do the three-day because then they'll have to call back in, right? So I think giving them too many, just they'll kind of take them and not think about it. But you need to have that kind of set. This is how many we're going to have. This is how many you're going to take. If you need more, you can call in, but you have to have that part. I mean, there was a, a Schlechter had a paper a couple of years ago where he basically, they gave the patients uh, their prescription in an envelope for post-operative pain management and basically said you have to open the envelope if you, you know, bring in the envelope at the end of the study. And if it's closed, you're the non-narcotic that you have to open. So I think providing, it's just providing barriers, right? So like providing something that they have to think about or do in order to get these is important. So yeah, obviously giving two narcotics is not the answer. Right. Anybody else have any thoughts about this? This was, I, I was, I mean, I wasn't shocked that more meds leads to more problems, right? But I think the the scale of the problem when it does happen is pretty scary. I thought it was a really powerful paper. And it's definitely just sort of uh, makes it clear that our age of innocence and our age of denying our culpability in the uh, opioid pandemic is over. I mean, in residency, I'm sure I'm not the only one that was just prescribing obscene amounts of narcotics just you know it was the sports there's the you know shoulder arthroscopy protocol like take the oxy and if it hurts too much well like here's a bunch of dilaudid just in case so it's amazing how far the pendulum has swung and it's nice to see some uh, data that really quantifies that it's not just sort of that qualitative association but it shows actually this many more pills this much more risk of addiction what do you guys think the rate of uh, an opioid dependence or a, you know, one of these disorders is just in the baseline population. You know, I, I really do wonder how much of this is just, this is their first exposure to it. And then they're asking for pills over and over again. And all of a sudden you've now, you know, you've just exposed something that is going to be there because that tendency does exist in a certain population. I'm not, I'm not certain how much we're predisposing our patients to that. Certainly I think, you know, the, the situation that Carter described, you know, giving them uh, carte blanche, as many narcotics as they want and providing no barriers, as we were talking about, is certainly problematic. But, man, some of these patients hurt. People perceive pain differently. It's anxiety-related. Sometimes uh, I, I worry about it going the other way so much with so much focus on it. Um, it's just a really tough balance to strike, and I don't think we have – the studies yet to show causation as opposed to just association, right? 
Well, so what do we need to do to get that next step? You know, who can we give our narcotics to because they're having a tough time and they're going to be fine? Who do we need to hold back on because they're playing us and they're taking themselves down a dangerous spiral? Yeah, and this paper doesn't address that. And I don't know the baseline rate. And I think you, you bring up a really good point, Craig, and that's that whole you know chicken and egg thing. But what the, the paper does have an a interesting line in it that the risk of future opioid use disorder is 33% higher in those exposed to opioids during high school than in index populations. So I think that early exposure, you know, as a pediatric or adolescent patient um, probably does potentiate that risk. But I think you're right. I mean, there's a baseline percent that's, that's at risk no matter when they get exposed. Last thing with the whole the grit score talk, is there a potentially a preoperative, you know, some sort of survey or just a questionnaire that you can give them that would predict which, and I'm sure there is, I'm sure you could find something, predict these people with the addictive personalities, right? Cause they're the ones that are at risk and just doing a better job counseling those and, you know, even potentially, you know, trying to talk to a sports psychologist or some, some help with that side too. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, we talk a lot about sometimes making people quit smoking before a certain procedure is actually the, the best outcome of their procedure, right? Is that they stop smoking. That would might be something similar that we could find um, with this is by identifying some of these people with these personalities or with various genetic predispositions or different things to these addictive things is identifying that preoperatively in the perioperative time frame before they become addicted and and become one of that 33%. That may be something that actually provides them a longer lasting benefit than what their surgical treatment is. That's a really good point. And that that was a nice dovetail into the last ACL article. So the third article we're going to talk about is also out of JPO and it's higher grit scores are associated with earlier increases in knee flexion following ACL reconstruction with meniscus repair in pediatric patients. Um, and so senior author on this is Peter Fabricant um, out of HSS. And, um, and so this basically just looked at the grit scale, which is something that has kind of become almost a little bit of a buzzword, right? There's a grit scale for, I remember seeing some papers on it about, you know, should we be testing medical students to decide if they're going to be good residents or not based on their grit scores, right? So it's all over the place. Um, but does grit score predict preoperative pain levels? And does it also predict, you know, their post-op recovery? And specifically in this paper, they looked at recovery of range of motion after ACL. So how quickly they were able to get or how far they were able to flex post-operatively at, at certain visit times. And so they found, interestingly, I, I this was surprising to me, actually, no differences in pain scores uh, between the, their two grit cohorts. So they had a cohort that they described as low grit and a, a cohort that described as a high grit based on their responses to these surveys. So no differences in pre-op pain scores, but a five degree difference in total range of motion at three months. Um, so five degrees less range of motion in the patients with lower grit scores than those with higher grit scores. So, so not huge findings, honestly. I kind of would have expected it to be more range of motion difference at three months, but potentially not. But I was a little surprised that it didn't predict pre-op pain. Because that's kind of what I what I assumed was going to be the first finding. So thoughts on grit, how we might use it. Is there a better way to, to test patients' pain preoperatively? Because it is actually pretty consistent across their cohorts uh, on how much pain patients are in pre, pre-op. Have any of y'all taken the grit test? It's pretty, yeah. 
it's kind of interesting, uh, the questions that they ask. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, for me, preoperatively to looking at these ACL kiddos, I don't do the grit scale, but I give them the eyeball test, you know, to kind of see how, how tough they're going to be. Cause you know, I mean, I hate stiffness. I hate arthrofibrosis and, I think, you know, they're those kids, the ones kind of like this that don't deal with pain as well and, you know, don't have the high grit, I guess that's what we call it now. Maybe that's the, the good way of saying it now. You just, mm-hmm. your grit's not very high. Not that you're not, you know, not very tough. But anyway, but there's definitely those kids that I send a prehab for a little bit longer, you know, and so maybe this helps predict who those are in an actual objective way rather than me going, yeah, I think you're going to be, you're going to be that one or you're not, you know, so I think it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting concept, but it, but you can also play with the scores. I don't know if you, again, if y'all have taken the grit, you can kind of know which ones to pick to have, have a higher grit. So anyway. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause we, uh, at LSU, we completely revamped our whole residency selection process this year. Um, it's been a big effort and we, uh, reviewed all the literature and basically have tried to create a holistic score now that we're losing step one. And I think it's been very successful and uh, kind of an inspiring process. And we looked really closely at grit and we did not use it because, I mean, if you can't game the system with the grit score, you know, you, you clearly shouldn't be, I don't know, maybe a doctor at all. It's really <laughs> easy to game the system. But I was curious about that when I looked at this paper and it was pretty evenly split between high and low grit. So I think these were people who, you know, they weren't applying to residency, so they didn't game the system. So I think they gave genuine answers. And as a result, 57% of them were high grit and 43% of them were low grit. And so, you know, that, that in theory is supposed to be the 50th percentile cutoff. So there were a little more than half high grit, but maybe that makes sense. Maybe the higher grit people are out there tearing their ACLs a little bit more. So I, I thought that was a good reflection. I thought that meant it worked. And I thought the part about the pain, like Julia said, that part about the pain pre-op was cool too, because that's the point. They're all supposed to have the same pain and then some people just deal with it better. So that was another indication to me, to me that this works. I just wasn't really sure what to do with it. So Matt, like, what do you do when you have that patient that doesn't pass the grit eyeball test? Um, you can do more prehab, but is there anything post-op that you've uh, figured out? Yeah. Some of those kids, I'll get an e-stim on them. I'll talk to a physical therapist and we'll, we'll actually send them home with an e-stim because I think, you know, the biggest thing is that fear of firing that quad. Right. And so seeing kind of what it feels like, and I really kind of talk them through and those kids I'll see a little bit earlier post-op rather than just the kind of one to two week. Cause I just want to make sure again, that they're firing that quad. I really stress, you know, don't put anything underneath your knee, right? Like I don't mind losing some flexion. Don't really care that mm-hmm. much about it, but I don't want you to lose any extension. And so I really kind of spend more time to go go over that part of it with them. Good. I was yeah. afraid you were going to say you give them a oxy and dilated script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every three hours, one or the Good. other, right? Goes unsaid. Yeah. So I, I can't be the only person who wants to know this, and maybe this is a great segue to um, to our session. But Matt, out of the four panelists or the hosts here, who has the most grit? Oh man. Well, oh, and there this actually is. That's Julia. Is there's no. There's really no question. <laughs> no, I know. There's definitely it Julia. Is, there's no no question. Julia. About that. <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but I appreciate the uh, the confidence in me. Oh, he doesn't know the co-host. All right, well done. <laughs> well, yeah. Let's let's j- let's go right into into the what would Matt do stirring the pot segment. So I'll I'll start off with one, and then we'll kind of go around the table. So ALL reconstruction or no, Matt? No. Okay. In any scenario, so, revisions. Revision, yes. But yeah, not, but yeah, I do more kind of an LET with, okay. I actually just dunk the, 
So I do like I'm doing a modified Macintosh and I actually bring it around through my tunnel, my femoral and tibial tunnel, oh, and with my either BTB or quad graft. So I kind of double it up that way. Cause I don't like, I don't like the LET having two points of fixation, like right there by each other in the femur. So I think this is kind of a nice way to limit your hardware. And uh, how do you decide? You said, you said quad and BTB. So what, what's your decision point there? Sure. So Skelly immature, you know, obviously doing all quad. If they're Skelly mature, I talk through both quad and BTB because I don't think there's, I don't think we have that right answer yet. You know, um, I think for, I would say for my adolescent males, I tend to lean towards the BTB a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, I do look at, I think the preoperative MRI can help a little bit seeing the thickness of the BTP. I mean, it's always kind of surprising in some of the BTPs, how thin the actual tendon is. I mean, I know no studies are going to really bear that out, but it's always, you're, you're looking at, man, that thing is flat. And so, you know, if you look at, especially some, you know, girls BTB, their patella tendon tends to be a little bit thinner and I'll kind of use that as a preoperative kind of marker for it. But anybody that's skelly mature, I talk about both and I really do the kind of shared decision-making with them. Cause I don't think we have that. This is definitely better. Perfect. What kind of activity limitations should sports surgeons be doing for adolescent patients before their ACL surgery? And you see them in clinic between that first visit and uh, the surgery. Yeah. So I say, you know, only straight ahead activities, right? No cutting, no twisting, you know, cause there's all, you know, we have all the studies that show that the longer you wait, the higher the risk of meniscal injuries, but none of those have really controlled kind of like you pointed out to, to what activity they're doing, right? It's just time from time one to time zero. So I think, really making sure that they understand and I really go over, especially the kids that don't have a meniscus tear. This is why I don't want you to do any of that because you don't want to make it any worse. So, and uh, does every adolescent meniscus tear get an attempt at a repair these days? If they have an ACL, yes, I would say, you know, if they're, if they're not, it kind of depends where it is. You know, some of those small peripheral tears, maybe they can heal, but I don't know. I still haven't, I haven't, completely non-op those kids yet what is the uh correct operation for a uh, sort of standard run-of-the-mill patellar dislocation yeah so mpfl reconstruction um recurrent so the key word there being recurrent patellar dislocation yes with no uh, and what is your stuff. what's your what's your go-to for the mpfl so i use allograph you know i don't like to rob peter to pay paul the same reason i don't like to use hamstrings in acls either i think you know I just don't, I don't like taking the hamstring. It just doesn't, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, um, especially for patellar and ACL injuries. Right. So, totally. you know, if, if allograph works just as well, then we should be using that. So. And what's your uh, fixation? How do you do your MPFLs? Yeah. So I'm trying to use not proprietary names. So basically what I do is make really small incision right over the kind of right over the anteromedial patella, go subperiosteally. And I use a rongeur and make a trough in the medial patella. And then I use two, big, strong, knotless suture anchors that have suture in them that has metal, right? And I use them in the shoulder. They're using the shoulder a lot too. But I use two of those. I make about a... Sounds like... Yeah, yeah sounds like <laughs> my tack. Anyway. Um, and to, but one kind of the superior and then one middle third to kind of really get that superior two thirds. And so then I get that nice kind of fixation point for the kind of the, the superior and, and distal one. That's, that's what I do in the patella. Then you really don't have much implants. You get that really good bony ingrowth. And those things are super strong. And then I use a screw in the um, femur. And skeletal immature go all pipsial and immature just, you know, nice. proximal and yeah, anterior. 
Um, can I just suture right into the periosteum of the patella without the anchors? The periosteum is so strong. What if I just use a, a fiber wire there without the anchors? You probably could, you know, but yeah, but I, I don't know. I like to be able to have, so I like to get down to that kind of cancellous bleeding bone, right? Like I, I'd worry that just suturing the graft into the periosteum isn't going to be enough to get that to heal. I haven't had one fail yet. I'll let you know about yeah, how, yeah, let me about know. like yeah, let me know. about two or three years ago. I was like, I don't know why I'm putting in these knotless anchors because yeah. like this pair, I think I can just put this same suture into the periosteum. Okay. Um, all right. So I probably just curse myself. I'll no, see I like that. Let me know. I'll let you know. Um, can I, in good conscience, operate on a first time patellar dislocator? I would say no, only if they have a loose body. Um, you know, I think you worry like what, you know, for ACL, ACLs, those are different, right? So if you have that subsequent injury, you're talking about tearing your medial meniscus, right? If you have another patella dislocation, nothing's really changed, right? So, yeah. And um, how about that loose osteochondral body we were talking about before? It's just not repairable. You've just got like a little osteochondral cavity there. What's your, what's your go-to treatment? If it's, you mean what you're saying? So it's gone. There's nothing. It's yeah. It's gone. It's, it's like out. a shred of cartilage. Yep. Shred of cartilage. Yeah. I'm, I'm telling you with that, with that suture uh, technique, you can really get a small little piece of cartilage and get it to heal. Um, I try not to do any, you know, bio or any of that kind of stuff from. from okay. The so trying to make some repair work for the first time for the, <laughs> exactly. the primary surgery every time. Cool. All right. All right. Love Perfect. it. Right, we, we've, we've thoroughly grilled you. We appreciate you. No All problems. correct answers. Yes, yes. exactly. It's now gospel. All right. Well, with this, we're going to take a quick break from the show to hear a little bit more from this month's sponsor, which is Nuvasive, as you heard earlier. As always, the sponsorship does not directly support the podcast. It supports the Posna mission. So that sponsorship does not influence any of the content you're going to hear tonight. As the regular listeners also know, we like for that sponsorship to just become part of the program and not like a in-your-face commercial. So we try to bring you some information that we think will actually be interesting and helpful. So tonight through Nuvasive, I'm sitting down with Dr. Amr Samdani, who is a pediatric spine surgeon up in Philadelphia at the Shriners Hospital there. He is certainly going to be a familiar name to most of our listeners. He's very involved with some important groups like the Harm Study Group and the Pediatric Spine Study Group. And um, we certainly talk about their work a lot on this podcast. So he has already been a contributor to this show, whether he knows it or not. So Dr. Samdani, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Carter. With that, uh, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit more about your involvement with Nuvasive and specifically with Nuvasive's educational initiatives. Yeah, I am very committed to Nuvasive's educational program because they truly do a very strong job through their clinical professional development program, which can be tailored for either residents, fellows, or attendings. They can either do site visitations where attendings or surgeons or residents or fellows can go visit other surgeons, or they have two big uh, educational centers, one on the West Coast and one on the East Coast, whereby surgeons can do individual visitations or sometimes even through small group, either attending surgeons or residents or fellows. What makes their program really unique is that they always start with a needs-based assessment and then truly tailor the program to match what the needs of either the resident, fellow, or attending surgeon is. So if we want to take this to a more personal level, and uh, if hypothetically I wanted to take advantage of this program as a relatively new attending, can you just sort of tell me what that would look like? Yeah. 
Firstly, I would suggest that you visit the NuVasive Clinical Professional Development website because there you'd be able to identify specific courses that are upcoming. And if you felt that a course fit your need, you'd be able to sign up for that course and attend that course. But it goes well beyond that. You can also do a specific site visitation. So for example, if you want to learn more about magnetic rods, you'd be able to do a site visitation where you would be teamed up with a surgeon at their home hospital, and you'd be taken through the surgical technique and some of the tips and tricks that those surgeons have learned. In addition, you'd have an option to either go to the West Coast Teaching Center or the East Coast Teaching Center, where you'd be paired with a surgeon, where you can really work on the techniques that you specifically would like to work on. Well, that's great. Thank you again for your time. And I uh, hope this is a useful resource that some of our audience members take advantage of. Thank you for having me. So we'll start off the lightning round. Um, Josh, you want to start us off? Yeah, that'd be perfect. So for the first article, this is a Interesting article, um, something that I don't think any of us do, so it always makes it interesting, but this is out of CHLA, uh, Dr. Goldstein, Rachel Goldstein is the uh, senior author, and then the group in uh, Albuquerque, and what they wanted to do was update the literature on um, child and adolescent total hip arthroplasty, so they reviewed all of their patients, and you know, I think their discussion is really good in their intro is really good because it really points to a lot of the shortcomings of the current literature on total hip arthroplasty and in this young child and adolescent cohort. So my question for you guys is, what do you think the primary indication for total hip arthroplasty is in this cohort? So under 25. Uh, Unstable skiffy causing AVN. Okay, Craig. Yeah, probably, but Perthes would be pretty high up there. No, it's going to be skiffies. Hey, Dr. Ellington, what do you think? Yeah, I got skiffies, AVN. Yeah, so not surprising you guys are right. So the the majority, 60 plus percent, were because of AVN, and more than half of those were related to skiffy. So AVN being by far the number one cause, and then some distribution of underlying etiology of AVN. But really wasn't, you know, end-stage arthritis. It really wasn't tumor. It really wasn't some of the other things. And that was one of the the things of their paper that said a lot of the studies from the 80s, which is when a lot of these original studies were done, their patients were totally different. They were looking at patients who had totally different etiology of hip pathology. Um, A high percentage of kids with inflammatory disease were getting hip replacements, where that's just not something that kids these days are getting hip replacements for. And then, like I said, tumors and other malignancies and all these other reasons, um, that's not what we're doing them for now. And then second question, which I was a little bit surprised is, um, what do you think the smattering of approaches for these kids was for their hip replacement? Carter, what do you think the number one was? Uh, I would think posterior. I assume they're having like relatively complex total hips. Okay, Craig. Posterior. Hey, what do you think, Dr. Ellington? Probably, but I'm going to switch up and just say anterior just because that seems to be. Yeah, yeah. That is actually pretty surprising because what they showed is that uh, 36 uh, procedures, 42% were posterior lateral. Uh, 39%, so essentially equivalent, were direct anterior and 20% were lateral. 
So a, a wider distribution from what I expected, where it's, it was almost equal between posterior lateral and anterior. And then the, really the key part of their study and their findings was that these kids do really well. So the doom and gloom that most of us have towards arthroplasty in these young kids, it's probably just not as valid as it was 20 years ago. And some of that's the indications, some of that's the etiology of their hip pathology, and then obviously just better implants now. So cementless, press fit, ultra high cross-linked poly, um, they advocate for ceramic on poly, but just a more modern I think following trends with other arthroplasty literature, but would say that these kids do really well. Their their outcomes, their patient-reported outcomes were significantly better post-op to pre-op. Um, most of them got back to activity without restriction. 90 plus percent of them had complete pain relief. So really, I think their clinical outcomes, their survival, um, you know, they only had 19-month follow-up was the, their survival. So I don't think we can speak too much about survivability because hopefully it's very few that aren't surviving um, at less than two years. So I won't get into that data too much because I don't think this is the paper for that. But in essence, this is a good study that says, you know, it is a, it, it's never an option one, right? But I think we we can probably be a little less doom and gloom when these patients have these horrible outcomes and get AVN. And for me, I know I probably set patients up for failure just by really trying to avoid this outcome, but maybe can do it in a little bit different light um, that a lot of these kids actually seem to do really well with this. Josh, not to put you on the spot, but did they mention what's the like modern state of the art for activity limitations after a total hip? Yeah, I was actually surprised because they said they had returned to all activities. 95% had returned to all activities. Like running um, sports. Yeah, I know our team has some restrictions that they keep on patients. And um, like I said, I don't I do not do this. So it's not something I've put a lot yeah. of thought into and certainly don't have my own protocol. But But yeah. They had 81 out of 85 that returned to all activities. Wow. Pretty cool. Yeah. I, I thought that was a nice, nice, just refresher. I actually just had that conversation with a patient really recently of what does this look like if you get ABN after this and what does that mean? And, and down the line, and I, I think you're right, we all have this sort of doom and gloom idea. And that's really probably not the reality for most kids now and going forward. So well, thanks, Josh. Craig, you want to take us next? Uh, yeah, if you guys have been missing out on your on your spine talk, um, listen up. We got two articles coming at you. Um, both of them are kind of about validation and related more to trauma than spine deformity. So it's maybe applicable. Maybe this is why you picked it, Julia. You could get in the mix here. Um, this first one is the reliability of AO spine upper cervical classification system in children's. It's a multi center study. Um, Dan Hedekos is a senior author and quizzed a bunch of uh, partners around the country on how they would handle and grade upper cervical spine. So this is occiput to C2 injuries. And essentially pointing out uh, something that I think a lot of us who take care of these injuries note is that uh, it's tough to figure out what to do sometimes. There's not a really good classification system or a book answer on what to do. And mostly you're asking experts and trying to figure out your own algorithms. And that's partly because they're so rare. And so um, there is, uh, I think we all are familiar with uh, the, the work that had been done on TLIX, and there's this new AO uh, spine classification, which is meant to be kind of occiput to sacrum all the way down, supposed to be reliable uh, and valid. Um, and they were applying that upper cervical spine 
system, which has been developed just in the last two years to children. It's really reliable in adults. So the question I want you guys to answer is really great reliability in adults in their pilot studies. So what do you think our group in this study found out about its reliability in kids? They, um, they graded it uh, amongst their group and compared interrater. And then they also graded it a month later and got intrarater reliability. So is it uh, equally good as the performance in adults? Is it decent, but eh, or is it just plain terrible? I'm going to go with option B, decent, but meh. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll second that. Think. Yeah, I'll go with decent meh as well. Yep, it is uh, decent, but certainly, I mean, the, the kappa values were like 0.8 to like 0.99 in the adult study. In the children's study, they were much more in the moderate range, you know, in the 0.5 to 0.6 to 7. In particular, the thing they struggled on was determining A, B, or C. So essentially stable injury, tension band, or kind of a three-column, totally unstable sort of thing. Our differentiation for that was like 0.24 to 0.3, which is, I mean, that's the crux of usually are you treating it operatively or not. And so if you're not agreeing on that, it's really tough to say that we're going to come to similar treatment conclusions. So yeah, it was decent, but probably not applicable yet. And there's some nice things with this paper to point out how we might make a PED specific score moving forward. And um, I think that that's compelling and really the direction we need to head. So um, great study. Um, and then any comments about that one? No, that next step sounds like a job for a high volume spine place like Vanderbilt. <laughs> Uh, we, we independently, uh, I read this and I was like, oh, well, we're trying to work on something like that. Most, and all of these studies kind of come out of my unfamiliarity of treating spine trauma and then um, being exposed to it now in, in my new role and trying to figure out how to treat it and trying to make heads and tails of it. Uh, so along those lines, uh, here's a study uh, that we did. Uh, Vanderbilt, I was the lead author, but it's really a group effort. And I leaned heavily on my uh, partners, Martis and uh, Schenecker. And um, this is a, I'll phrase, I'm not going to give you the answer. So I'll phrase the question of can thoracolumbar injury classification severity scale or can the TLIC score help identify intra-abdominal injury in children injured in an MVC? So yes or no, Carter, Julia, Matt? It, it sounds very tasty. I'll go with yes. <laughs> yes. Thumbs up here too. Yeah. And so, um, yes, the answer is yes. If their so spine severity score is very high, it is quite predictive of intra-abdominal injury. And this is something you know, I kind of remember these pearls when I was a resident uh, of OIC, uh, calcaneal fractures, I better look for a lumbar injury. Remember these kind of orthopedic corollaries that we have. It's like, you just can't miss them. This was something that I, I don't think we want to miss a lot of intra-abdominal injuries, and we don't want to be taking people to operate on their spines when they've got uh, belly issues that are unrecognized. And um, kind of a multidisciplinary effort, and our trauma, our general surgery partners there helped point out um, just how frequent these intra-abdominal injuries were. And um, uh, essentially, we had this group of spine trauma, thoracolumbar patients from MBCs, and we looked at which ones had intra-abdominal injuries and which ones didn't. And um, the TLIC score was highly predictive of that, more predictive than other clinical signs. I think the most famous being abdominal wall ecchymosis or the seatbelt sign. 
Um, and when you combine the two, it's even stronger. But um, I think the things that you can tell your residents are that uh, if you have an intra-abdominal injury, uh, 80% of the time, your TLIC score was, uh, was over five, which is kind of the surgical threshold. And um, if you didn't have an abdominal injury, 80% of the time, it was less than five. Pretty, pretty good validity statistics there. And when you do a ROC, um, our area under the curve is, let's see, 0.699. So decent area under the curve, the statistical testing, if you combine that with abdominal lacrimosis, it's 0.86. So I think the takeaway is just if you've got a severe spine injury, particularly one that's going to require surgery, make sure people are looking at the belly. Um, and I don't know if this is something you've come across, Carter, but uh, I literally had a patient like this last week that was, you know, questionable, free fluid, not really sure what to do. He wasn't really tender. And we kind of waited for him to clear and um, before we took him to, to fix his, uh, his lumbar spine fracture. Um, and so, you know, you just, I think it's just a word of warning uh, how frequent these things are. So, so this is my ignorance, but are all of these visceral, you know, potential intra-abdominal visceral injuries going to show up on the, the CT that all, all of these patients are getting, at least at our institution? Yeah, um, not all. So particularly hollow viscous, and I learned all this from talking to our general surgeons. i not not claiming to be an expert here, but the hollow viscous injuries, so colon and small bowel, don't always show up on the CT. Sensitivities are somewhere to you know, 70 to 90%, depending on what studies you read. So a lot of times they're kind of waiting to see if they get peritonitis, see what their lab values do, and monitor an exam. But you can't really do that unless you have the suspicion. I, I think there are probably some institutions, Carter, if you're not a level one, that maybe don't pan scan everyone, or when, you know, and maybe have a different threshold for that, or maybe when they're getting their spine recons, they're also not looking to include the whole abdomen. Um, depending on which direction that imaging protocol is going. And so I think that it particularly helps people who are maybe not in the situation of scanning everyone, but we're very liberal with our trauma scans here. I think it's because we have a low dose protocol. We feel pretty good about that, but uh, a lot of places I don't, I don't think are consistent with that. So what was the, uh, <clears throat> what was the origin of this paper? Were you guys trying to validate the, the TLIX in kids or was this specific, is this the sort of question that came out of clinical practice first and foremost about looking at the, uh, intra-abdominal injuries? This came out of clinical practice, um, because we had just kind of looked at some original, some data from this and I was shocked at the numbers. And these aren't just like observe and it gets better abdominal injury, 60% of them needed laparotomies or laparoscopy. You know, that's, that's a real percentage. Yeah. Um, so that came out of clinical practice. Um, but we, we are also trying to validate Telix and kids and are presenting that work at POSNA. So thanks for that lead in. Perfect. You're welcome. All right. One more paper for the, uh, the lightning round. This one is called health related quality of life in patients with AIS 40 years after surgery. It's from Spine Deformity out of Japan. And the authors looked at 27 patients. Um, they started with a lot more, but they got responses to surveys for 27 patients who had surgery between 1968 and 1982. And these 27 patients filled out repeat surgeries, excuse me, repeat surveys in 2009, 2014, and 2022. So pretty amazing follow-up, but it really cut the cohort down to uh, to get that follow-up. And overall, 
I'm not 100% sure what to make of this paper. We'll get into some of the ambiguities, but what, what do you guys think determined whether someone was doing well with, with spine health, with back pain 40 years after AIS surgery? Mobility. Size of their fusion. Size of fusion, yeah, mobility. Lowest, lowest level. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. You know, they, they didn't have all the data in the world. They obviously weren't doing this with modern techniques and really, you know, nailing the sagittal plane. Um, but what they found These are all was... Harrington rods? You know, they didn't go into the surgical um, techniques, but some of them were probably uninstrumented fusions, I would assume, based on the timing. And they basically found if you went down to L4 or L5, in other words, if you had less lumbar motion segments by some of their survey techniques, you were more likely to have uh, dysfunction and back pain. The SRS-22, um, the Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire, they didn't change the whole time, but the ODI, the S. Westry Disability Index, did get worse, specifically in those last eight years of follow-up. The patients with less lumbar mobility were significantly more likely to have back pain uh, affecting their function. So, you know, is it really applicable to modern techniques? Can we now go down to L4 and save the sagittal profile and they'll do fine in the long term? Maybe. But, you know, it's uh, it's food for thought and uh, feeds that argument that we should be sparing all those lumbar motion segments as much as possible. Yeah, this is, that's a, you know, there's that study that um, Sanders and a group from Rochester did where they followed up 40 years of Harrington rods, which he spoke about a lot. And it's a great study to read, but that was their main finding too, mostly about distal level fused and a higher increase in revision surgeries if you have to go to L4 or distal, and um, revision surgeries leading to worse ODI and other clinical scores. So kind of two studies with slightly different methodologies, but coming to that same conclusion. And that's totally different cohorts, right? Different countries. So there's maybe something there. Yeah, one of the interesting things I think about these long-term studies, right, because we, we want long-term outcomes because that's what helps us guide practice, explain to patients, counsel families, but like the technology is always going to be that far behind whatever you just did. Right. And so you got to take everything with a grain of salt, but I still think that studies like this are, are important because otherwise things move too fast, right? The technology changes and we move along too fast. So, so what are the, what are the things that we can take away that still apply? Like you guys said to our current population and how can we help counsel patients based on that? So um, I always really like these long-term follow-up studies, even if they're not, you know, they, they've only had a few that were able to do it. I still think there's some pearls to pull out of that that we can apply to our current practices. So Definitely. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you very much, Matt, for joining us. Well, thank you all very much for having me. Keep this going. This is awesome. Let me give one more plug, if you don't mind. So first author for our paper, Kurt John Wagner. He's a fourth-year med student. So be on the lookout for him interviewing the interview trail this fall. He's awesome. He's going to be an awesome resident. So we all keep up this good work. This is awesome. It's a lot of fun. So thank you all. Well, thanks again, Matt. Thank you. And uh, we'll see everybody at PASNA here shortly.